Our Father, thank you again for sending your Son as you intended to do before you created a single atom of the universe. You had determined to adopt us in Christ who know you, to provide for our redemption that we who are sinful would be holy and blameless before you, and that we would delight in you and find in you our greatest joy and treasure beginning here on this earth and extending in perfection and fullness throughout all of eternity. Thank you for doing this for us. It is grace by which we have been saved. And so we commit our time to you and ask that you would remind our hearts and teach our hearts these truths. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, let me begin uh, by saying, uh, again, John mentioned it earlier, but thank you to those who uh, put all the extra time into the bathroom. So there were those who did the demolishing last week, and then there were, I know they don't like names, but the Boussiers and the Polonies and Carrie and a little bit of Ed uh, there yesterday and Saturday making sure all of the painting get done, got done, and then Jason was here till late, Lombardo, uh, putting in the lights, and there's more to be done, but thank you for everyone who uh, really helped and served uh, to get all of that accomplished. And also, I was uh, asked by Debbie, who's not here this morning because she's not feeling well, uh, to remind you that there is a 50% book sale uh, in the book nook, I believe on the 19th, I don't have it in front of me and I don't have my phone, uh, but I think she said it was on the 19th, so uh, we'll send an email out as a reminder for that as well. So those are my two announcements. One other quick announcement. I hope everyone got, there were two handouts. One is another little thing of charts. If not, um, did anybody not get it? You can raise your hand. Okay, some didn't. So maybe Ray, could you go grab some of these and the other? Yeah, and the second is a handout that has some quotes because uh, I did not get them to Mike in time and I did not want to hear uh, or see the facial expression if I asked him that this morning. <laughs> so anyway, there are just a few little quotes to, to put there that didn't get up on the screen. So I put them on a sheet of paper that hopefully that will be helpful. Uh, and let me begin as well uh, by noting this, that we are continuing our ascent this morning. Uh, our climb, as you will, to the top of the mountain of Revelation. And we're about to reach the peak and see the vista that God has given us in this wonderful book and see the, the panorama of glory of God's intentions for the end of the world, for this, the end of his purposes in this age. We've already made it through some difficult parts. We've looked at eschatology in general. We've looked at eschatology and God's purposes from Genesis all the way to Revelation through the theme of the garden. There's other ways you could do it, but the garden is a, is a very helpful one. We've looked at the importance of eschatology in the Christian life, why, I'll understand, why understanding that the, in the end of all things is important for us, how that affects our life. And so we at least introduced, there was more that could be said, uh, the centrality of understanding these things uh, to the Christian life. We've looked at major theological systems. This is a bit more of the technical part, but hopefully helpful in the long run of covenantalism and dispensationalism and understanding how these two ways of approaching uh, God's big plan for the world affect the way that we view such things as the nation of Israel, the people of God, and the end of the world. And we've looked at different ways that uh, others have understood how that was going to work out through different theological systems or eschatological systems of premillennialism, postmillennialism, and covenantalism, and so forth. And so we've kind of covered that ground. And this morning we come to the last, if you will, of part of that preparation, that, that ascent to when we actually get to the text of Revelation. And this morning we will consider the way that Revelation itself is understood and some of the important issues that are related to how we approach 
approach the book of Revelation. And, and granted, this is some of it uh, new information for some. It's a reminder of things that learned in the past for others and maybe a sharpening for others still. But it is important for us as we come to it And of course, we will look at things very generally this morning, and as we go through the actual book of Revelation, we'll be, and actually start walking through verse by verse, the details of this will be fleshed out. So again, this morning is is meant to give a broad idea, to give a big panorama, if you will, of the ways that uh, Revelation is often approached, or the ways that it is approached. And so this will bring us directly to such questions as authorship, date, genre, principles of hermeneutics, and so forth, things that again we won't belabor but we do at least need to mention and have the idea uh, in our minds Uh, unfortunately some avoid revelation because when of all of the different ways that it's talked about or approached it seems to produce more confusion than it does clarity but yet God has given this massive part of the New Testament for our edification indeed for our blessing which is directly tied to our reading it understanding it and obeying the things that are in it And so it is important, God did not give it to us for our confusion, but for clarity, for understanding, for our hope, and for our joy, and for our obedience. And so hopefully as we go through it, that that will be the overall uh, impact that it has on our heart. Mark Twain famously or infamously quipped this. He said, the researchers of many commentators have already thrown much darkness on this subject, and it is probable that if they continue, we shall soon know nothing at all about it. (laughs) In other words, that the more the scholars talk, the more confusing it can get. And so we want to avoid that uh, if we can. So we're going to look at this morning three big points. And I'm going to be, uh, try to just summarize some of these, these things in terms of how we approach the book, uh, how we understand when it was written, who wrote it, and so forth. Under three main points. First, preliminary matters, and that's genre, authorship, those type of things. Then the different approaches that uh, are generally applied to understanding the book of Revelation and then a possible outline or a potential outline or whatever you want to say. I was trying to stay with all Ps, you know. That's the theme of my life is trying to alliterate everything. Well, let's begin just by jumping right into it and deal with the issue of authorship. Now, some of these things are simple. Uh, There you go. So if you need a chart, uh, Ray is going to uh, hand those out to you. And then I'll address and go over some of it uh, uh, a little bit later. So who wrote the book of Revelation? Who wrote the book of Revelation? It would seem to be a rather simple question. Of course, nothing you learn, the more you study Scripture and the more you study uh, things that people say about Scripture, the more you realize that uh, with every verse and with every issue, there's going to be generally a variety of uh, opinions and approaches. Uh, Some legitimate, many not legitimate. But nonetheless, uh, so it is with the authorship of Revelation. Who wrote the book of Revelation is the question. Uh, it, it was written by the Apostle John. And, and really, this was unchallenged throughout the early church. It was primarily the unanimous understanding of the early church. It wasn't until around the mid-3rd century that someone by the name of Dionysus of Alexandria offered a different defense, saying that it wasn't the Apostle John that wrote the book. It was actually an, a prophet who was named John, who was well-known in the 1st century. And of course, other suggestions are given, but this was one of the pre- uh, preliminary ones that hung around for a little while. But by and large, it's been understood that Revelation was written by the Apostle John. 
It was written by the Apostle John. He is identified in verse 1 of chapter 1 that this is what was given by an angel from the risen Christ, which he received from the Father to his slave or his bondservant, John. Uh, He says again, Later in verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker of the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance and so forth. This is the Apostle John. He ministered in that time, uh, in that place, in the church in Asia Minor. He's well attested to historically and so on. Uh, But we will just for simplicity's sake understand that this was written by the Apostle John. Matter of fact, one said this. This fact remains that the external evidence for authorship by John the Apostle is earlier, clearer, and more definite and more positive for Revelation than for the traditional authorship of any other New Testament book. So... There it is. For any of you who are wondering, or if you hear otherwise, uh, the position we will argue and defend is that this was written by the Apostle John, given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When was it was written? Well, now we get into some details that are really going to play into some of the various approaches to Revelation. When was it written? Well, there's two possibilities for when it was written in terms of category. Was it written at an early date or was it written at a later date? If it was written at an early date, that generally would cover about 60 to 64, right in that range. If it was written at a later date, the range is given as much as um, 80 to 100 AD, but usually it's considered around in the 90s AD. Now, why is that important beyond just general information? Well, it's important in terms of how we understand and interpret the book of Revelation, because if it was an early date, which some will defend, then that opens up to a position that can see the imagery and the material in Revelation as being fulfilled at an early date, namely around 70 AD. There's variations, we'll look at that, but about 70 AD, particularly in the destruction of Jerusalem near the end, it wasn't the end, the end actually happened at a place called Masada, but it was the destruction of Jerusalem near the end of the Jewish revolt in 70 AD by the Roman Empire for their rebellion. And so some see the events as being fulfilled then, and an early date provides for that. A late date, however, does justice to the historical setting and has been the majority position of the church uh, since the second century. Uh, And early attested to, I won't go through all of that, but that it was written... uh, that it was written definitely after the 80s and most likely around 95 AD by the Apostle John who was in exile during the reign of Emperor Domitian near the end of his reign. He was from 98 to 117, so near the end of that reign. Uh, that he was banished to the island of Patmos. He was under uh, persecution for his testimony of faith in Christ. And while there, as he says again in verse 9, that while he was on the island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he there, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned the book of Revelation. So that it was written by the Apostle John. It was written about the mid-90s. And there it is. But now we come to another important question. Genre. Now, what is genre? Genre refers simply to how we identify the type of literature that we're reading. And it's important because each type of literature, each genre of literature has certain characteristics that are important to recognize before you read it in in terms of how we understand what it is that we're reading. Now, there's many kinds of literature, even in Scripture itself. There's narrative, there's poetry, there's wisdom literature or proverbial literature. There's biographical literature, although with some very specific things related to Scripture. There's epistles or letters. There's a variety of kinds of genres of literature in Scripture, and it's important that we recognize, as a matter of interpretation, what kind of genre that we are reading. 
we would defend and understand as the only sane way to under scripture that in every genre and according to the specific principles we nonetheless use what is and here's the big word many of you are familiar with or description a grammatical historical interpretation a literal interpretation now that simply means this that we understand each letter each book that was written came in a historical context it came in a moment of time that it was written with real words that had real meanings and real lexical definitions and all of they are connected together in such a way that God did that to convey meaning and that the meaning that he conveyed is frozen in time there's one meaning and it's the same meaning for those in the first century the second the third fourth fifth sixth all the way up to 2020 21 or 2021 in the United States of America it doesn't change it doesn't change for us here and the meaning doesn't change for those who are in Asia or those who are somewhere in Europe or anywhere the meaning is the meaning and that's simply to say an historical grammatical literal interpretation now literal interpretation understands the different kinds of ways that language is used literal interpretation understands that there are figures of speech there's metaphors there's hyperbole and so on and so forth there are all of those varieties and that again gets us to the issue of genre how do we understand those principles and those different ways that language is used particular to the genre of literature that we are reading well, that then, of course, you can imagine is a big discussion when we come to Revelation, and it's going to affect how one interprets what they read in this marvelous book. How are we to understand then Revelation? Well, there are three kinds of genres that are identified or generally uh, asserted in coming to Revelation. Those three are epistolary, apocalyptic, and prophetic. And apocalyptic is really a subcategory of prophecy. Well, it's important to recognize those. Let me at least just define that simply. Uh, to say it is epistolary is to say that it is written as an actual letter to, uh, to actual recipients. It was written as a letter from John to those who were to receive it. And, and it has certain elements of that, although that's really rather a minor part of the book. Uh, apocalyptic, the very first word, as I'll mention a bit, is the, the Greek term that's translated as apocalypse. Apocalypsis is the word. Uh, and so some say that the primary, the primary way that the genre of Revelation is that it is apocalyptic. And that is a, a way of communicating that places heavy emphasis on signs and symbols, not so much on how these symbols relate to specific historical events, but rather just the general idea uh, that they communicate. A prophetic is a foretelling of events that uses descriptic and symbolic language. And again, it's meant to convey a message to its present readers. As I noted, all three of those are present, and it leads some to call it, and just so you can know how this discussion goes, an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter, letter to seven churches. One simply calls it prophetic apocalyptic epistle. <laughs> just capturing all three in the title however what we want to be careful to note and this is again we'll, this will play out later as we look at it is that John himself under inspiration of the Holy Spirit identifies the primary message of revelation to be prophetic to be prophetic Let's just listen to his own words. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. 
Describing his commission in chapter 10, verse 11, he says, And they said to me, You must prophesy, prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Chapter 19, verse 10, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Chapter 22, verses 7, 10, 18, and 19. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book." In other words, it's very clear that in the mind of John, who wrote, this is to be understood as prophecy. Now, that's important. It means, then, that it is to be understood as looking forward to events that will take place under the sovereign hand of God. Although, as I noted, the first word in the book is apocalypsis, that term is merely emphasizing the revelatory nature of the book. He's not giving an identification of its genre. There are aspects, of course, of apocalyptic-type genre elements, such as it was mediated through an angel. It's focused on the last days, the end days, uh, and those type of things. But the primary nature of it is to be understood as prophetic, looking forward to future events. And that is important. It is anticipating things that will take place at a time that is future to the writer and the readers. As a matter of fact, just a quick search, uh, not by me, uh, well, a quick search. There were 75 verbs that are future tense that are used in Revelation. In other words, this is a major emphasis. Its prophetic use of symbols and imagery means that they, these, these symbols and these pictures are meant to identify specific Historical incidents, happenings, events, and persons that are to take place. Just as, by the way, the prophets of the Old Testament gave anticipation of the restoration of Israel and the coming of her Messiah and so on. Its prophetic emphasis is important because, again, as it will be shown in a, in a moment and as we go through the book of Revelation, it tempers the, symbolic, the symbolism it tempers it in this way, it makes it, it constrains it from being used too widely and too loosely and too broadly in the mind of interpreters, and it connects it to actual historical events. Again, that will come about as we go through. So that's preliminary matters. It was written by the Apostle John, it is prophetic in nature, and it was written in the late first century. Now, secondly, what are the primary approaches? What are some of the primary approaches? Now, if you were to look at this handout, let me just mention it. We're not going to sit here and go through it, but there are helpful things that I just want to mention. Now, there, there are some different categories. We're going to slightly look at the different approaches. It's not a right or a wrong. It's just the way it's here and the way we're going to do it. But you'll notice on the first, the beginning of it, it says there's a historist, preterist, futurist, and idealist. Uh, we're going to change the historist one. I'll look at preterist, uh, uh, futurist, and idealist. And these are different ways that the book is generally approached. Again, this is a simple chart. It's meant to just give a very broad and general idea, but it's helpful. And so uh, if you look at the first part, it simply defines those. And then if you were to go through to the end, it shows the way that at certain key interpretive points, each one of those positions understands the book of Revelation. 
So you could read those. You could see how it's described by each one. And uh, hopefully that will be a helpful, uh, helpful uh, reference uh, to you. Let's consider first the preterist. The preterist. What does that mean? That's not a word that we use every day. Some of you, again, maybe have heard of that. Many of you probably have not. A preterist approach to Revelation simply says this, or describes this, that it understands all of the events of Revelation as having been fulfilled in the past. Usually, there are other variations, so it's not every preterist would be this, but generally, those who see the core of the events of Revelation as having been fulfilled in the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 A.D., they say this is an anticipation to the readers who received this revelation of John to anticipate this coming destruction. And that's what the language describes. Some see it even as uh, referring to as late as the 5th century destruction of Rome. But in either case, to the preterist, all of the events in Revelation have already been fulfilled in the past most, again, most commonly fulfilled either in 70 AD or at least by the end of the first century. The, the strong defense or argument of the preterist is that the language of nearness requires this. So, for example, even at the very beginning of, verse, of the book, in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, he says, Heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. For the time is near. And so the preterist would say this is meant to be taken literally. And let me just make a little footnote here. Each one of these positions would claim literal hermeneutics. They just define literal hermeneutics differently. <laughs> that, becomes the, that really becomes the issue. But nonetheless, they'd say the time is near. It must be near to the time of the readers. It must be that which is about to take place in their own lifetime. And they would see a connection here with the Olivet Discourse. That's the discourse from the Mount of Olives. If you'll remember that Jesus gave to his disciples in answer to his question after he foretold the destruction of the, or after they were admiring the temple. And he says, not one stone will be left upon another. And then he goes into this rather extended uh, revelation or discussion about the destruction of the Jewish temple, which is primarily focused on in Luke chapter 21 and the end of the age which he specifically describes in Matthew 24 and other places. That is the Olivet Discourse. And they'd say, well, this is, in fact, a fleshing out of what Jesus told his disciples about the coming destruction when not one stone will be left upon another of apostate Judaism, the Judaism that killed their Messiah, the Judaism that put to death the God they claimed to worship. And this is a revelation of John to give more specifics about how that is going to take place and how, in fact, that did take place. So the coming of the Lord, then, for a preterist is... The coming is not a personal coming of the Lord, not him physically present. The coming of the Lord is connected with his coming in judgment. His coming in judgment. The Lord came, the Lord fulfilled that promise, according to the preterist, when he brought destruction upon Jerusalem. And so they would then make the connections between these apocalyptic or judgment events with the horrors that the Jews underwent during the destruction of Jerusalem. And it was horrible. It was horrible. It was comparable to their exile and the destruction of Jerusalem when God sent them away in judgment, the tribe of Judah. 
under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It was horrible and terrific, horrific. So, for example, let me just give you some ways. Again, this could be, many more could be marshaled, but some of the the ways that this is made connected. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 21, judgment is described in this way. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Predators would read that and drawing quite largely from, and again a name some of y'all are familiar with, an ancient or an old Jewish historian who was there during these events by the name of Josephus. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who ultimately went over and uh, became on the team of the Romans, if you will, and wrote a history, really, really largely probably trying to defend the Jewish nation, but he wrote some histories and antiquities and one called the Jewish Wars. And it's from the Jewish Wars that in describing this event of Rome's destruction of Jerusalem that Josephus says this, and this is the connection then that a preterist would make with these huge hailstones and so forth. Josephus says this, Now the stones that were cast were the weight of a talent. I think this might be in your handout and were carried two furlongs and farther further the glow they gave was not was no way to be sustained as for the jews they at first watched the coming of the stone for it was of a white color and could therefore not only be perceived by the great noise it made but could be seen also before it came by its brightness and so they're saying, well, there's the connection. There are these bright, white, large stones, about 100 pounds, that were used by the Romans to be catapulted into the city uh, of Jerusalem, and it caused great ter- terror and great fear and great destruction. And they'd say, well, that's what Revelation is talking about, that kind of destruction. And, of course, uh, those connections would be made all the way throughout Revelation. That's just to give you an example. However, some of the problems with identifying the judgments and the destruction of Jerusalem, though there are many more, would be this, that the coming of the Lord, even in the Olivet Discourse, is directly connected with the confession of the people. Do you remember? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's no way to attach the destruction of Jerusalem with that kind of confession from the mouth of the Jews who were undergoing God's punishment and who experienced that punishment not in repentance but in continuance of their rejection of Christ as Messiah and their rebellion. So that hardly took place in 70 AD. And while there are similar descriptive elements, they do not fit the global and universal language and nature of the judgments in Revelation when it talks about the earth and so on, the inhabited earth and so forth. Nor does it fit in just a bigger picture, a macro look, the point of Revelation, which is God's uh, judgment and justice being met on the earth that is in rebellion. All of those who bear his image, all of those who stand outside of his saving purposes in Christ. For the preterists then, however, Jerusalem is the great harlot that rides on the beast in Revelation 17. The very focus is Jerusalem. So when he says, come and I will show you, verse 1 of 17, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine for immorality. That is, according to the preterists, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the harlot. Jerusalem is the harlot that is destroyed. And in fact, it is her destruction that by the hands of Rome in a preterist view, 
that represents God's final divorce from his people for their unfaithfulness. The final divorce of his people for their unfaithfulness and the destruction of Jerusalem that allows him to take on a new bride, which is then described in chapter 19 and and then following. As a matter of fact, one preterist describes it this way, referring to Revelation 19. The lesson of Revelation now becomes clear. Christ gloriously appears as a warrior bridegroom punishing faithless Jerusalem and taking a new bride. That's a preterist understanding. The new bride is described in Revelation 21-22 is uh, by the same person authored by means of poetic imagery, imagery the glory of salvation. So that's a preterist view. They say these are things that have taken place. They have fulfilled primarily around 70 AD. Typically, again, there's some variations Uh, And this is looking at the destruction of God on Jerusalem in fulfillment of his promise of the Olivet Discourse. And it's a time that's coming near and therefore it is a time that happened in the lifetime of those to whom it was written. Secondly, the idealist. The idealist. Uh, The idealist could be described as ahistorical. Really what that simply means is that there is no immediate specific historical connection that's to be made with any of the events that are laid out in the book of Revelation. They understand Revelation is representing the ongoing and perennial struggle of the kingdom of God versus satanic opposition and evil in the world until the coming of Christ. So they'd say, this is a picture, this is symbolic language, this is showing the cosmic struggle between the kingdom of God that has been begun and is being established on earth and the kingdom of the Antichrist that is resisting it tooth and nail all the way to the end. And so there's a cyclical kind of, the word uses recapitulation. There's a way that it's, it's merely showing how at various points in the history of man, this kind of struggle is going to manifest itself. And the language is merely meant to give a picture of that. And again, it's not surprising then that they would understand Revelation as being primarily apocalyptic, primarily symbolic. It doesn't need to attach to anything specifically historically. It merely needs to give an idea of the struggle that is a reality to give hope to the people of God. That's essentially how an idealist approaches it. Uh, in this sense, it is sometimes called the spiritual approach since the sign and symbols are representative of deeper spiritual meaning, symbols of general truths that may have historical incidents but are not representative of specific historical moments or events. Uh, let, this is in your handout. Let one idealist defends it in this way. This word from the Lord comes like no other. It does not come in the form of a letter, nor do you receive a comforting word of victory from the historical accounts of the life of Christ. Rather, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you receive God's message through a series of visions that roll before your eyes like an animated motion picture, impressing you with graphic designs and colorful symbols. In Revelation, words take take the place of pigments and brushes to create a portrait designed to visualize great principles not particular incidents that's an idealist we shouldn't look at that and expect some specific event and for it to attach with some historical reality we merely should feel the kind of struggle that the church is always going to go through Uh, that's the idea 
Of course, these all come down to hermeneutics, how we interpret scripture. Regarding the idea of symbol and the use of symbol, one says this, they may not have, they, they may have, not historical, they may not have historic connection with any particular event, yet a symbol may find fulfillment in an historical event or person without exhausting its meaning. In other words, the idea communicated can find different realities or different connections with history, but the, the, the vision itself, the symbol itself, is not meant to be attached to any one specific event. The seven churches then are not addresses to specific sins at specific points in history, but as one says, the symbolic meaning of the seven as completeness suggests the author is speaking of the church at all times and in all places. In other words, he's merely using those examples to speak of the church throughout the entire age until the return of Christ. The four horsemen in this view represent Christ who is on the white horse, and then he says the 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 others represent the disintegration of hum, both human civilization and creation as a result of the rejection of the Lamb of God. The fifth seal illustrates the persecution of the faithful. And here, just more specifically, the 144,000 that are identified, 12,000 coming from each of the 12 tribes of Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 7, are not ethnic Israel. They're not ethnic Israel, according to the idealist. They are, in fact, merely representative of the church, of the church as a whole. So we should not take 12 tribes and 12,000 from the tribes in any way literal, but merely as a symbol to say the church that is going to be saved. The words of John are, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Ah, but not the actual sons of Israel, the church. As a matter of fact, one says then of the first six seals going on, that the vision does not, again, point to any particular period in history, nor does it describe any particular set of events in the near or distant future. Well, we could go on, but for time's sake, I'm going to move. In brief, the idealist sees Revelation as calling Christians to endurance and courageous living by focusing attention, attention on the fact that God ultimately is control and will bring about justice in the end. So if you want to know what is the point then of all those symbols, it is to tell the Christian that in spite of all the adversity and all the difficulty and all the persecution and all the suffering that you're going to do, remember this, Revelation through that picture that it's painting for us is a reminder that God sits on his throne, his sovereignty is unchallenged, his lordship will be made known on the earth and you will be saved so be encouraged that's the idea of the idealist and uh, just to summarize that they get there through this hermeneutical principle and, and using their own words he one says this it interprets they interpret the text as apocalyptic literature the idealist begins with the presupposition that since the book is apocalyptic, every episode of vision is symbolic until proven otherwise. The heart and soul of the idealist approach is that Revelation is an apocalyptic book that presents spiritual precepts through symbols rather than a book of predictive prophecy fulfilled in specific events or persons in human history. And so there it is. Thirdly, there's the progressive dispensationalist. And this is the mix of the historical and the future. It would be, and some would, would connect more to what, to see certain elements of truth in a preterist interpretation, in other words, fulfillment in natural historical events in the first century AD primarily. Uh, and yet, those events anticipating a future ultimate fulfillment that is to come. Well, let's just get into it. 
Uh, we could describe it this way, that a progressive dispensationalist understands revelation as having its ultimate fulfillment in the future, but with historical pre-fulfillments or anticipations of the final events that will close the present age. Let me just read from one. The progressive dispensationalist seems both, sees both perspectives as viable. There is a partial fulfillment, the past, as well as a final realization, the future, regarding those things in history. Thus, the symbolism of Revelation attests to dual fulfillment. Progressives perhaps offer a balanced statement of the previous views, arguing that the past is proof positive that God will complete in the future what he started. A key hermeneutic for this position is this. The hermeneutical principle is the already not yet eschatological system. In other words, with the coming of Christ, with his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and receiving the promise from the Father, Acts 2.33 of the Holy Spirit, that was poured out on the day of Pentecost at the formation of the church, that that began a conflict, an overlap, if you will, of these two age. The eschatological age that is marked by the completion of the work of the Messiah and the presence of the Spirit that is now, it is in the church, it is indwelling God's people, it is here and it's in conflict, having already received in reality of those who belong to Christ, salvation, forgiveness of sin, the presence of the Spirit, Spirit, the certainty of the hope and the promises that are yes and amen in Christ, and yet still living with the reality of sin in us. Paul in Romans 7, that I see the principle of sin that is still in me, that I, with all of creation, Paul says, am groaning with God's people, awaiting for the release, the freedom of the sons of God that is to come at the end of the age. They say that is the tension that we live in and that is the hermeneutical drive and principle that helps us to understand that there are realities here that are anticipated that are not in themselves the fulfillment but they point us to what will ultimately happen. That would be a progressive dispensationalist. So how does that work out? In Revelation 1.19, there would be a textual argument here for that which is from their uh, own writings, write the things uh, in Revelation 1.19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things establishes a twofold chronology. What John refers to in verse 19 is his apocalyptic vision of the nature of reality, this age, the present, and the age to come, the future. We do indeed find in verse 19 the interpretive key to the book of Revelation, the two ages, the already not yet, the eschatological tension, that part where we have but we don't yet have it fully. We're saved but we don't know the fullness of our salvation. We have been born again but we yet have indwelling sin and we wait for that future fulfillment. And he says that is the kind of key that helps us to understand Revelation. With this in mind, the primary historical backdrop that, that finds application in this system is that of Caesar worship. And so the, the historical incidents or reality that provides the framework for this view is that the church in the first century stood in conflict as this creation of God, as the new people of God stood in conflict with the Roman Empire that was anti-God, that was against God. There was the Caesar worship and that again became the point of persecution for the early church will you bow the knee to Caesar or will you refuse to bow the knee to Caesar and claim that Christ is Lord that was why they were persecuted yes there were lies for a short time that went around about cannibalism and so forth but those actually were short-lived in reality the issue became this not so much not so much what they were doing but what a Christian would not do 
That became the issue. The Christian would not bow down and acknowledge Caesar as Lord. They would not burn incense. If they were to do that, they could do that and then go off and do whatever Christians do. But they had to do that. And the Christian said, no, no, I cannot do that. And so that then provides the backdrop, the Roman feeling, the sense of conflict between the kingdom of this world under the rule of Satan and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. And that then, while it has historical realities in this early conflict between the church and with Rome, those were not the fulfillment that ultimately what John is doing is revelation is wanting us to see those as doors, as windows into this greater reality of the conflict that will come at the end of the age. Not under the Caesars of the early centuries of the AD, but the one who would come like Rome at the end who would be under the sway of Satan and under, attempting to destroy the people of God. So in this light, the judgments of chapter 6 through 19 have historical precedent in this conflict between Caesar and Christ, but refer ultimately to the judgment and woes that will immediately precede the coming of Christ. So then, Nero is the historical marker then for the, the Antichrist of Revelation 13. But the actual fulfillment of Revelation 13 isn't exhausted with Nero, as the Predest would say, but is exhausted in the one who comes uniquely at the end of the age, just before the coming of Christ, who will, like Nero, seek to wreak havoc and death and destruction on the people of God. For example, the beginning of judgments in chapter 6 correspond then to the destruction of Jerusalem, which is an, uh, the first historical incident of what will, incident what, what will happen in a, greater, uh, in a greater event later. It served as a precursor of the judgment of the end of the age. One says this of that position, according to the Olivet Discourse, the fall of Jerusalem is part of the already aspect of the age to come, which the return of Christ constitutes the not yet aspect. So they'd say that already, that destruction says, look, God will act judgment, take warning, take heed, a greater Judgment is coming. This position understands then in Jesus' words that the wars, the earthquake, the famines are the beginning of birth pangs while the end will come after the gospel has been preached to all of the nations. Regarding the explicit future aspect, this position understands the 144,000 uh, to be 12 tribes or to be 12,000 from each of the actual tribes, physical descendants of Abraham, of Israel and a reference to the future salvation of the Jews. And it's for that reason that it falls within the dispensational camp, although some would argue that. But nonetheless, that's why, because they would see then an actual identification of Israel as the physical descendants of Abraham, the actual physical covenant people of Israel, and that this 144,000 is the first instance of God's promise that all Israel will be saved, and that those who are saved, these 144,000, becomes a witness to the earth during the tribulation period, out of which many others will be saved, and that is the great multitude that is identified later in chapter 7 of Revelation, who came out of the great tribulation and who were saved during this period they understand this position that the millennium of Revelation 20 is also a literal, literal thousand year period of Christ's reign on earth in fulfillment of promises made to Israel of an earthly kingdom of peace and righteousness under the rule of Messiah on David's throne on the earth and again that would mark them as dispensational 
In light of this, Christ's reign is followed by the release of Satan, that thousand-year reign, a final battle, the great white throne judgment, and the eternal state. So that is the idea of a progressive dispensationalist. And now the hermeneutical key in that, in terms of the already and not yet, is this. And this is what would differentiate it primarily from what we'll look at next, the classic dispensationalist. Because then a progressive dispensationalist would say this, that there are multiple meanings to the text. That it does have a meaning that is an immediate historical reality, happening, incident. But that it has an ultimate meaning, a fuller meaning, a, a meaning that is going to find fulfillment at the end of the age. It is the dual meaning aspect where much of the discussion takes place. Lastly, then as a classic dispensationalist, and this is the futurist view. This would go primarily to on that chart I gave you, the futurist view of Revelation. And this view says, understands Revelation as primarily as a prophetic announcement of God's purposes for the church, the inhabited world, and Israel before the return of Christ. The classic dispensationalist or futurist understands that Revelation is primarily a prophetic announcement of God's purposes for the church, the inhabited world, and Israel before the return of Christ. In this sense, Revelation is about God's plan for the future and a fleshing out of the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years of God's purposes for the nation of Israel, a time that is related to the day of the Lord, which is a concept, we'll look at these things later as we go along, that has, in this context, judgment, the woes, the messianic woes that are to come upon the people of God and upon the earth. The core elements of this position are twofold. One, that the genre of revelation is to be understood as prophetic, not apocalyptic. And again, the importance of that is to say that these are future events that have actual historical fulfillments. They're not merely principles. They're not symbolic ideas. They're not merely pictures to communicate realities. They are actual foretelling of events that will come about on earth. That's one. Two, a consistent, to use the words of one, a consistent adherence to grammatical historical principles. The word consistent there is key. Consistent. Consistent. In other words, that we are to understand the symbols and the message and the actual text of Revelation literally unless according to the principles of normal interpretation related to that genre tell us otherwise. Let me give an example. Some examples. How do we know then when we come to a prophetic text, how do we know then whether it's to be taken as literal or symbolic? Well, like you would read most things. If he says hair white like wool, Where's the key word there? Like. He's not describing actual wool, but he's saying like. If it will sting like the tail of a scorpion, meaning that the sting that comes about will be commensurate, it will be like, it will be similar to the sting of a scorpion and all that that implies. It's the use of metaphor. The use of metaphor. Those where metaphor is a, is a strong kind of comparison. So a simile is where you use the word like or is as or something like that that's making the comparison. A metaphor would be something that states it more strongly, directly. So for example, and uh, this might be terrible, this one's off the top of my head, is uh, they're, uh, they're uh, I don't know, it's not coming to me. I had one and it went away. Uh, but you could say this, a metaphor, let me just jump right to the text, that'd be better. 
is it says, then I saw coming up out of the sea a beast coming up out of the sea. That's a metaphor. There is a metaphor, because he's saying, he's simply calling it, it is a beast, but the context would help us to know that he's not talking about an actual beast that's connected here, that this beast is representative of other realities, and then that is played out through the remainder of the text, when this beast is compared to like a leopard, like a lion, like a so on and so forth, and then he describes the kingdom and the nature of the rule of this beast. So that's normal, literal interpretation that says, yes, it's literal, but literal understands that this is prophetic material, and the text clearly makes known to us that this is meant to be understood symbolically. Yes, an actual person is going to come up. Yes, there is going to have these actual uh, characteristics. Yes, this is going to take place in history. That's the prophetic side and the literal side. So... Let me give you some other examples. In chapter 9, verse 3 through 7, the locusts that come up out of the abyss when the pit where demons who are now held are freed and they go about with this strange imagery and he says they sting with their tails as scorpions of the earth have power. One describes it in this way. Heavy evidence favors the identification of these locusts as demons or fallen angels who assume a locust-like form. Later, he says they have a form such as no human being has ever seen. The woman in chapter 17, verse 3, sitting on a scarlet beast, involves an obvious absurdity. That's another clue of when symbol is being used, when an obvious absurdity is there. Trees clap their hands. The scarlet woman, this woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which not only does the imagery itself clue you out in the context that this is symbolism, but also he goes on to describe the nature of that symbolism through the rest of chapter 17. And it speaks of the wickedness of an apostate religion linked to the kingdom of Antichrist. And so he explains that meaning in chapter 7 through 13 when he speaks about kings and authorities and different lands and what's going to happen. When there's no indicator, it should be taken as literal, and this is where we get into it. So, when he says that one-third of the earth will be destroyed, he means one-third of the earth. There's nothing there, there's no clue, there's no literary marker that says this is symbolic. In chapter 2, verse 10, when he speaks to the church and he says, you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Well, there's a variety of options for 10 days. Again, when we get to these texts, we'll look at them. But one describes it this way under the classic dispensational. The 10 days are literal and refer to an unknown persecution within a definite period of time during the generation to which this message was addressed. No reason to take the 10 days as symbolic exists. In other words, there's no clue. If he says 10 days, he means 10 days. There's no reason to mean anything else. In chapter 13, verse 5, speaking of the kingdom of the Antichrist, the, the, John says this, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. 42 months, if you do the math, is three and a half years. Three and a half years corresponds to half, the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, the seven years of tribulation. And it is during that period that the Antichrist is given unique authority, given authority by who? By God. God, to act for 42 months, the fact that he had already been given authority to act in an evil way has been noted in the beginning of the chapter as his source of his power and evil coming from Satan. Satan would not limit his authority to 42 months. And the overall, so here, he's speaking that God gave him authority and God gave this one authority to act for 42 months because that was the period that God had determined and predicted and anticipated in the prophets in the rise of this final evil kingdom. 
In chapter 9, verse 15, it says, Four angels who have been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Again, there's no reason to take that as symbolically. Four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released. So one makes this comment. One article governing all four nouns shows that duration is not in view, but that the occasion of each one of the times dead time designations is one and the same. God's actions are not accidental, but planned and precise in time to the point of a fixed hour, a fixed day, a fixed month of a fixed year. In other words, it's meant to be specific. And of course, this is going to play into our understanding of 1,000 years of the kingdom of Christ in fulfillment of the promises to David ruling on earth. So the classic dispensationalists, and so where do we stand? Well, as noted before, we stand mostly on the side of a class, we meaning not every individual here, I'm aware, okay? But we as a church, at least, which hopefully again will be defended as we go through and get more specific but generally to say that we would land more on the classic dispensational side with a little bit of leakiness with progressive dispensationalism, if I could say it that way. But again, what's more important is not so much the system, but how we understand the text and how it's defended as we go through. That's the more important issue. But let me end with this. How then do we understand the, the chronology or the happenings of it, of Revelation? Well, the classic dispensational understands Revelation as presenting the events of Revelation in an essentially chronological order through the prophetic tendency or application of telescoping. Now, what in the world is telescoping? Telescoping has this idea, particularly as it is applied to prophetic imagery and here applied to the book of Revelation. It's the idea that in each successive judgment, so if you remember, there are the judgment of the seals, there are the judgment of the trumpets, and there are the judgment of the bowls, which each one of those judgments, there is an intensification. There is some overlap, but there is an intensification. You'll notice as you go through the text that John describes it in this way. One, two, three, four, five, six. The seventh leads into the next. So the seventh seal leads into and is in fact fulfilled by the seven uh, seals, or excuse me, the seven trumpets. And then on the seventh trumpet, we go into the seventh bowls. And then at the bowl, the seventh bowl uh, judgment, it is the culmination of all of them. That's telescoping. That's the idea of prophetic telescoping. Uh, one describes it this way, through each series, though each series has a different beginning, all three end simultaneously, that is, with the event of the seventh bowl. And so with this, Revelation 1.19 this chronological aspect is understood as presenting the basic structure of the book. Again, Revelation 1.19 says, Therefore write about the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. One says this, the threefold division is the most natural understanding of the symmetrical grammatical construction. In other words, the things that uh, he has seen in the vision in chapter 1 the things which are his current situation and the things which will take place after these things, which is looking towards uh, the future. So the global language is meant to be just that, global. It's not localized to Jerusalem. It is, in fact, God's judgment on 
the world, his wrath poured out on an unrepentant world. The rise of the Antichrist is a future leader who will be under the control of Satan. The martyrs are those who come, out of, who come to faith during the tribulation period as a result of the 144,000 Jews who are saved. The return of Christ is going to bring final destruction to the Satanic kingdom. The establishment of the Davidic kingdom promised through the Old Testament prophets for 1,000 years will be known on earth and a final destruction at the end of that thousand years will be followed by the great white throne judgment which will be followed by the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and God dwells with his people forever that's the way that it's understood and that is the way that we primarily will lean the anticipation is essentially future and the overall theology and purpose of revelation is then to remind us of this that God will fulfill his word And he will fulfill his word because he and he alone is sovereign over all that he has made. He is sovereign over his word and he will fulfill his promises to his people. And the foundation of the fulfillment of his promises to his people and his judgment on the earth is his completed work in the person of Jesus Christ. Who alone stands as the head and the authority and the glory over all of creation. And so all of creation that stands in rebellion to him will submit to him and his lordship. And he will bring judgment and justice to all who fail to do so. That is the basic theology. God will have the last word. This is the hope of revelation. This is why John says in verse 11, we give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Chapter 22, verses 12 through 14, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. And may enter by the gates into the city. And that, I am thankful to say, is something that in the end all agree on. That God's people will be with him forever. That God will execute justice. That God's purposes will be fulfilled. That God's people have a sure and a certain hope no matter what trial, no matter what death, no matter what suffering is endured in this world. That is not the end of it. The end of it is salvation. And that is the ultimate hope that we hope, hopefully will receive as we go through the book of Revelation. You can note at the end a proposed outline that will flesh out again as we go through. I won't go through it now. But you know what, beloved, as noted before, as we've taken communion and in introducing this book, that's what we remember in the Lord's table. Remember in the Lord's table that Christ has come The Son of God, eternal, has taken on flesh. He has accomplished everything that God said that he would accomplish. He would accomplish everything that he said he would accomplish, that he would be delivered over, that he would be betrayed, he would be rejected, and he would rise on the third day. Guess what? That's exactly what happened. Why? Because the Lord said it. And he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And right now, real time, this moment And the moment when we leave, Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you personally, sovereignly, gloriously, graciously, and will do so until he brings you to his presence at the end of the age to stand before him in a resurrected body, blameless and full of great joy. 
And the, res- the table reminds us of this. And God himself gave it to us to say, even as Paul declared that we proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. Until he comes. And he is coming. And may God communicate that grace to our hearts. Let me pray and then the men will come out and hand the elements. Father, thank you for your word. There are so many complexities, Lord. We stand humbled. Why we are called by you to be accurate in our understanding of your word, to present ourselves as workmen who are not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth, we do so with humility. We do so with the certainty that we should have, but with the humility of understanding that these things are great and high and wide and and so far beyond us in their full scope and the full depth who we stand as your people humbled and yet trusting, looking to you, our sovereign Lord. And we say, even as John said at the end, and as your people have said throughout the ages, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what we want. And this table reminds us, and so as we take these elements, as we worship together, may our hearts resound with that expression of faith that we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, and keep us faithful until you do. To that end, we pray in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.